We all want more freedom, and a lot of us work hard now in the hope we'll feel free later. What if there was another way? A way to feel happier, more free, and confident to get better results right now. Welcome to Your Freedom Unlimited, where we share practical stories and strategies to help you show up authentically, drop your fears, and take inspired action on what matters most to you. I'm your host, Jen Ramsey. As a coach with a love for metaphysics, science, spirituality, and strategies that get results, I'll help you step away from self-doubt and create a powerful new story for your life, business, or career. Join me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Your Freedom Unlimited with me, Jen Ramsey. I am so pleased that you're here. And this week, I have an extra special episode for you, because this week I'm interviewing my dad, Lex Shepard. So often in the show, I've asked people about the choices they've made to create more freedom in their lives. So this week, I thought it would be valuable to get the perspective of someone who has lived a very long, happy and fulfilled life. And that's my dad. Dad is 87 years young, and he is one of the most optimistic people that I know. So I thought this would be a great chance to share some of his story and to share some of his insights into the things that we often talk about here on Your Freedom Unlimited. Things like trust and love, family, gratitude and acceptance. This episode is a two-part episode. The first part of the episode was recorded in January 2021. We were then interrupted by a COVID-19 lockdown, so we then did our second part of the interview, and today I'm really pleased to be bringing the whole episode to you. So please enjoy, and I'll look forward to talking to you soon. So Dad, um, what I do on the podcast is I always we always start with asking you to share some of your life story, to wind back right to the beginning. And as I said earlier, you're 87, yeah. so you've seen a fair bit of life. So I wonder if you can just wind back to the beginning and tell us a little bit of your life story. All right. Well, I was born in Western Queensland and where my father managed uh, sheep properties. Uh, unfortunately, my mother died when I was four and my father when I was 12. So I had an interrupted childhood in that respect. My father had been a um, returned man from the First World War. Uh, three and a half years on the Western Front, and so a part of his death, I won't go into details, but it was concerning that period of his life when he was on the, during the war. But anyway, we grew up there in Western Queensland. Uh, I was, at, at an early age, my brother, an elder brother and I, 18 months, we went to a um, an orphanage for a few years, the only way dad could handle us, uh, having four children and mother suddenly dying, and she died for an oversight from the hospital was really why she died at, at 37 years of age. And so we went to an orphanage for a while at Corinda in Brisbane, uh, three and a half years, and we had a part of that three and a half years, four years, whatever, uh, was spent down at Kalani. Uh, on the uh, Darling Downs. Uh, my brother and I were close in in age, but not like a lot of brothers. We weren't particularly really good friends, but nevertheless, we got on okay. And then I came back and dad, of course, being a, a, I'd be a, I'm a legacy product. I went through boarding school in Charters Towers and that, it was a very fortunate thing that I, that dad, dad was a legacy person, or I was a legacy person, uh, that uh, went and did senior. I matriculated, but had no, uh, no intention or wanting to go to university. I was just there because the uh, legacy chappy said, well, you will stay there whatever you are passing the exams. And, and what, what I might break in now, just for those of you who may not know what Legacy is, it's a really incredible um, charitable organisation here in Australia that provides a legacy for children of our returned um, servicemen and women. 
and they're still operating to this day. But it was thanks to Legacy that, and, and thanks to my grandfather's incredible contribution um, to our society, to our Australian society, that dad was then able to um, receive support. So when my grandfather passed away, dad was then able to be provided with educational, basically an educational scholarship, wasn't it, dad? It was, to, yeah. to get that great education. Yes. And I know mum always said she thought that was just a, a fantastic legacy of, of, of my grandfather to you. Yes, it, well, it, it was indeed. And it, the looking back now, it's you take things for granted when you're young, but it really was a burden. There is the old saying, education is no burden. And that's quite a fact. But the good part about it is if you're at school like that and playing team sports, such as rugby league was what I was more keen as, I was very keen on, and uh, I was given the opportunity to captain our first team, I don't know what it's called, but Eggie Miller, who was our, our coach, mm -hmm. our, he was a wonderful coach, he'd been a, he'd been a, a navigator in Lancaster's and just returned from the Second World War, Eggie, and he was probably about 25, 26, and uh, he took the place of my father in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I've got utmost gratitude for Eggie because he mm -hmm. uh, pushed me and uh, he didn't push me, but he brought the best out in me. And he said, right, oh, you can referee these matches when we weren't playing. And it was very, uh, it was a wonderful place. The school was that College, Toowoomba mm -hmm. College in Charter Towers, a wonderful, wonderful place, mm -hmm. and I was very fortunate. Uh, so then I went. Would you like? Yes, to keep keep going. Yes, keep going. Yeah, what happened I, after school? I, I went to. Uh, I worked in the bush, as was the accepted thing for a lot of people in those days, young people, and I'd went to um, place of the Baku and southwest Queensland and then to the Northern Territory where I worked for five years. In the last two years, I was head stockman on Burnett Downs, which is quite a big property up there, 5,000 square miles, still the same, uh, Burnett Downs. And uh, it was a great period of learning in my life because uh, it was, Aboriginal stockmen, predominantly in the cattle camp, and a couple of uh, young white fellows who are still, they were a bit younger than I was 23, 24, the two years I ran a cattle camp at Burnett. And I still keep in touch with those two fellows. They're down here in Queensland now. Anyway, um, so I worked there for two years, wouldn't paid a lot of money on the, in those days. The King Ranch eventually bought Burnett Downs. They doubled the head stockman's wages just as soon as they took over. They said, these, these guys are being robbed. So, uh, were so, you there then? Were you when King Ranch took over or were you? Well, there? I'd, I'd, I'd just gone and oh. King, King Ranch mm -hmm. took over. I came back into Queensland and managed property there for a few years. I was very wrapped up with picnic racehorses in those days. Mm -hmm. It was a 10 stone seven minimum, which means people of my build, I could starve quite a lot and I could still ride with a pad, a jockey pad, still ride a 10 stone seven, mm -hmm. which is something I can't do now, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so dad, I'd never heard that before that you said you had to starve before you uh, rode in a race. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, well, you, I would. You like any, I think the jockeys, the younger one, the uh, lighter ones, I'd be right through. Uh, they all, what goes down down your neck is what makes you fast. That's or, true. Or heavy. And uh, so it it would be a matter of being very careful with what you ate for a period of time, a week or a mm. fortnight maybe. And then we... Uh, and, and picnic races were a very big deal out in there in that country. Mm -hmm. we, we could, uh, had, was, they didn't cost a lot of money to race horses, to, to race the horses. 
that was in the paddock, but it was very well. Um, it was a big social event, wasn't it? A big social. It wasn't event. just about the horse racing; it was about everyone mm. coming together in a because right. a very remote community, so there weren't many people living. That's people right. weren't weren't in. There weren't a lot of people around, so there was just yeah. a chance to socialise and get together. Mm. Yeah, Brun Brunette would have one race meeting a year, and there'd be Camel Wheel and Tennis Creek, and a place called Renner Springs further. Up and uh, then coming back into Queensland, there was Winton, Winton picnics and uh, Tower Hill. They were wonderful get-together places, and that was where I actually got to know Margaret, mm -hmm. who was to be my wife eventually. She was married to a, a chappy Dick Breckenridge, mm -hmm. and uh, she. They were married for a few years, had three children when he was unfortunately killed in a, in a plane accident. She went away, and Margaret went away to Cowra and uh, became district nurse down there, bought a house, and she, which is quite close to her parents, so they supported her very well. And... I, by this time, I'd bought a drilling plant and I was drilling for water, artesian and sub-artesian water throughout Western Queensland and up in the Gulf. The way Margaret and I met was very fortuitous. I'd had an accident at the drilling plant, being doing something stupid, I suppose you would say. I was, anyway, not taking enough time to think about it. And so I took a, a fortnight off to go down to Winton and Margaret had just happened to come up from Cowra. And this is five years after her husband was dead, her first husband, Dick, had been, killed, had been killed. And we met this night at Outerdo there in, uh, in Winton and uh, we got on well, got together the next day and then Margaret said, oh, I'll come down for... Christmas to there and then by the end of that time we decided to get married. Now I want to interrupt you here because there's a really amazing precursor story to this story. Yeah. So, well I'm not sure if you wanted to share this story but about the dreams yeah. you'd been having before. Yeah that. well it was well, while I was drilling it, it was good good occupation for me. I was making plenty of money and I was sort of I wasn't tied down. I wanted to go anywhere away I went. And, uh, but I wasn't married and didn't look like being married. And a lot of my friends, they were married and had a child or two childs perhaps. But I had this dream, a recurring dream that would come along and say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. You'll get married. So. Um, and what will, tell us about the content of that dream. Remember. Yeah, that you'll be married, and, and uh, when you are, you'll be living on a property where there's a house and the sheds are a bit of a distance away, 100 yards or more, or 200 yards perhaps, and uh, there'll be kids running around. There were three or four kids. No, I couldn't quite work out how many were, but I knew there were kids running around, three or four kids. And you had this dream more than once? Oh, I had this quite a few times over, uh, over a period of time. And, uh, and it actually allayed my worries and concerns, if I had any worries and concerns. I thought, oh, things will be all right. Just keep going the way you are. So, so uh, when I met Margaret, we decided... We would buy this property. She had a, an interest in this property with a big, huge debt on it. And I bought the other half of it. She had a half interest. I bought the other half and also had a debt. But nevertheless, we, uh, we had it we financially viable opposite. Um, so we decided to buy that and uh, together and get married, which we did in 19. 69, yes, yes, 69. And uh, we moved up to the Darling Downs, about 40k south of Dolby on the Darling Downs. 
The first thing of note that happened there was 12 months later, Jennifer was born. And, uh, but let's just, and I guess what was amazing about, I've always loved this story that Dad's had just shared with us is that that the property was exactly as his dream and what how his life turned out was as his dream. The, the, the property, the house was a long way from the sheds. It was on a waterway and mum came with three children. And yeah. and I was came along twelve months later. So your dream really did come to That's light, right. did come to pass, didn't it? That's right. It was a sort of murkiness in the dream, the kids running around of it, but definitely the house there and the sheds further down, and uh, the layout was exactly as my dream had. Wow. Been. The layout, you know how things can be laid out. So uh, we. Uh, Got on very well. A wonderful time on a property there because it had a creek there where there's fish in and you could swim. There was horses to ride and there was pigs to chew. And there was motorbikes to ride. So, and the kids, whatever was work, seemed like play to them. Mm. And uh, even later on when the others, the older children had gone on their separate ways. Uh, I had a lot of, I was very fortunate to have Jen as a, uh, as my chief stockman. And I, if we were mustering the cattle, and we had ran about two or 300 head of cattle at times, sometimes we had sheep. And I'd uh, get Jen, I'd wait till Saturday morning or a holiday time and she was most, was very useful as well. so we had a lot of fun didn't we, we had a lot of fun mm. yeah we did indeed rode yeah. a lot of horses and dad and i spent a lot of really beautiful time together in nature but working with the sheep or the cattle and having a great time it was wonderful yeah. childhood it was yeah it was good so uh, we went on and uh, margaret and i were married for not that very close to 50 years and uh, it was a, a beautiful marriage because the, further, the longer we were together the, the closer we became mm. we didn't drift apart at all in any way and we were very very happy in the finish margaret got dementia because it's a slow thing it takes dementia takes a lot of different angles and curves but she had got dementia and the specialist said, well, you'll have her for eight years. We actually had her for 15 years. We mm. cared for her and uh, she was still good. I'd take her out west. We'd go to Camelwell, which is west of, uh, west of Mount Isa. And she was very positive traveling along, even though she'd lost a bit of, for, for instance, I'd say, well, what do you want to do, love? We do this or do that. And, and she'd say, uh, well, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. So she wouldn't make decisions, but nevertheless, she was quite positive in what she wanted to do. And, and we said, we'd got to what is termed the drover's reunion in Camelwell. I have it once a year. And it was a great time to go out because a lot of the bush people would come back to Camelwell and uh, it was good to see them, albeit 50 or 60 years later since it's been them before. But uh, yes, we uh, got, got on very, very well. One of the funniest times I recall is it take us four days to get out to Camelwell and four days to come back just taking it on this driving motor car. We'd stay in a motel. Anyway, the last, coming back, the last morning we're staying in Roma. And it was a pretty cold morning right at the end of winter, but it was a frost outside. And uh, we had a little, we had a sequence uh, to, that I would get her, care for her and get her ready and uh, that. And she was used to it. 
But prior to this, in in my very young days, an old fella in the bush used to, on a cold morning would say, uh, "By gosh, I wouldn't like to be out with only a hat and spurs on today." <laughs> so this morning we're in and had a we had a shower, a warm shower. I'm sorting the clothes out. And Margaret's waiting there to get the uh, for me to organise her clothes. And, and I knew she was cold just by the, she said, you know, bright and reason. I knew what she was saying. I said, love, I said, put your hat and spurs on it. I'll keep you well warm. And uh, she said, uh, she didn't answer me. I turned around and she got a hat on, nothing else, a hat on. And she said, I can't find me spurs. <laughs> so it's one of those little humorous things. And, I thought it was very funny and easy, but uh, we continued, um, we, we did well with our property, then we sold that and uh, bought another house in town. So Marg and I lived, lived in Dolby for 10 years and then we, um, Oh, we did quite a few things there, you know, you, you three, University of Third Age was just starting in those days. Someone, one of the ladies who I knew pretty well said, well, would you consider being president of the U3A? And uh, I said, oh, I'm not putting anyone else knows that. I said, oh, yes, I'll do it. So I did, and it, we, I said, you're not putting me in for my good looks? She said, no, we want some men in it. <laughs> it was, a lot of women, so we altered the uh, we started things like indoor bowls and and table tennis. We got them in. We double the double the um, numbers in in the organisation in twelve months and uh, getting these people there, and it, that was good. Then uh, Marg was getting a little less. I was looking after him more than I had been, and it was time for for us to make a move. And the girl suggested we come over to the coast, which we did. So we came over to Butterham and bought a house there, and we had had ten years there, then, or close to ten years, and uh, that was good. And uh, you know, in the finish, I was caring for Marg. And, uh, she lost a lot of weight because I was the cook. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that, Dad. That is because my cooking not all the best. But uh, we we uh, we've had a very we had a very good marriage, a very fortunate marriage, despite what problems occurred. And I'm thinking of the dementia. Uh, we, yeah, we, we had a a very good marriage, and it the longer it went, the more solid it became. Mm. Yeah, I know friends of mine, Dad, have said to me that they feel that you and Mum were like lovebirds, and I think you really were. And mm. the thing that I saw you do for Mum more than anything in that time as she steadily declined with the dementia was that you maintained her dignity. Yeah, And that was a very... I learned a lot from you in that process. It was, you were very staunch about her dignity and her being treated just like everybody else, even though there mm. were obviously some, some um, cognition issues that she had. And to me, that was a really big learning in terms of just what well, demonstrated your love, mm. but also that, that dignity. And the fact that you took her everywhere with you and you involved her. And I often think that we got those extra, you know, eight or 10 years because you spent so much time so deeply caring for her and, yep. and involving her. You took her to the music, Dad. What Dad hasn't talked about in, in, in his, when he was president of U3A, he also took creative writing classes and that he also um, did a lot of singing and formed music groups. And, and I think the music made a huge difference mm. for Mum because I remember her still tapping, even, you know, still tapping her fingers to music even in the last six months before she passed away. Yes. Last year. So, mm. you know, she had that great love of music that you both shared 
and yes. you but you engaged her and you involved her in all of that. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, it was, and it was a something. I, she responded to what I what I wanted from her, and she was she responded. So that was the mm. the good thing about it. She was always very positive. You're right. Yes. You're exactly right. The other thing you haven't shared with us that I will share now, and then I'm going to ask you a couple of other questions, is that you you write two books. Yeah, I wrote two books. Um, well, can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, well, we're on the farm and it got very, very dry in the drought. And all I was doing at that time, we had sheep at that time and uh, more so than cattle. And I was feeding them two or three times a week, used to feed them corn, uh, maize, or, you know, that's the yellow maize or corn, whatever mm -hmm. you like to term it. I used to come out and sheep do very, very well on that. They don't need a lot. They need as much in a matchbox per day and they will thrive. Is that right? Mm, it's incredible stuff it is, corn. And they can see it. See, it's yellow. It's in the dirt. They'll pour it mm -hmm. and they can pick it up with their lips. So I was feeding and not a lot else to do. You can't work the country because it's too dry and, you can, uh, you can, I suppose, go and do outside work if you wanted. But uh, Jen had been to, we'd, she'd gone to uni and we'd bought her a uh, computer. It was a big old thing. It was a big old thing. <laughs> Which had a mouse, used to work. And uh, Jen said, well, there's, that computer's good. But she said, I don't need it. Now, there's plenty of computers at work and they're more modern. I'll bring it back and I'll show, I'll show you how it works. And uh, right, yeah, so she did. And I thought, oh, I'm going to write a book because something I'd always wanted to do. And uh, anyway, she brought it back and showed me how to use it. So I wrote a book. It was self-published, although they're both self-published. And uh, the first one I could have, if I was doing it again, I'd approach it in a different manner. But the second one I quite liked was a novel. And it's something, it's an accomplishment too. All of us, the old saying, all of us have a book in, it, in us. And I believe so too, because we all do, we'll all live different life, mm. lives. We've, we've all lived different lives and different growing up. And we've all have our own little stories. And uh, if you can get them down, uh, in good old plain English, it's um, it's interesting. And, and what is interesting is uh, is the fact that I, I got this, the novel I wrote. I got information from a what I call Jack French, who'd been a he'd been a a, a member of a, a Lancaster crew. And they'd got, they didn't shot down, but they were forced down over Holland. And, wow. Uh, this is in World War Two. In World War Two, and then they had, they had a old Adolf, and they were guests of old Adolf for uh, two years, I think, eighteen months or something. Mm, yeah. like. And it it wasn't easy for them, but I did get all the nitty gritty of it from Jack French. Every mm -hmm. little detail now, the marvelous memory old Jack, and uh, he told me all about it. So I thought it made a good story. And uh, I have a younger brother who's, when he first, I gave him a copy of the book. I said, Here you are. He read about three. Oh, he said, If you're going to write a book, he said, You've got to pick the characters and do this, blah, 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 and do this. And blah, blah. I said, Keep reading, keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't see him for about six months. By gosh, he said that book. He said it. You know, he finished. He said, I couldn't put it down. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Toughest critic, Dad, is your brother. <laughs> and he's a very harsh critic. So, uh, so that that was the story of the the book. It was more or less something to do to take my mind off the drought. Mm. And uh, it's not good to be living with an author let's put it that way 
because you'll be you're writing your book and you're taking your time and then you go and go to your partner, your wife or whatever. And they want to talk about something else. And your mind is still back in the book. I think you wouldn't be on your own. I think a few authors would say that. That's and, right. Yeah, and so you, you, you've, you've got to be able to switch off and switch on. And, uh, yeah. But I always do remember that, Dad, that you did, you used that time really productively. And it could have been, I mean, drought is a terrible thing and it's something that we, we encounter in Australia too much on our properties mm. and it's very hard for our folk living on the farm. So it was wonderful that you were able to, I remember you did a lot of furniture up as well at that when you wrote the first book. Mm. There was a lot of furniture that was done up yeah. and a lot of that book was written. So it was just, and it's a great, I agree with you. I think we probably all do have a book in us and yeah. you've, you've given us a great legacy, not only in dad's first book is called My Own Boss and it's all about his life and, and so on. And then the second book is called That's the Way for Joey and Me. And um it's great that you were able to ha turn your hand at both types of writing as well, mm. which is great. Yes. No, any, no, any tips for budding writers? Uh, any tips? Hmm. Probably all I can say is, you know, speak from the heart. If you're trying to get a message across, and my you know, speak from the heart and really believe in it. My second book, which is a novel, I was working on racism, which is what I wanted uh, to emphasise, you know, what a, a terrible thing it is, really, mm. racism. And uh, it, so I suppose right from the heart and, you know, think about carefully and... Uh, and, but if you want to do it, do it. Don't don't sit back and think, well, I might write a book sometime. Get going and you might, might only be able to put, afford 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day, but get stuck in and do it. And uh, you'll find that there's, it'll come. The more you think about it, the more things will come. Different slants, different ideas. So, yeah, and it's interesting. It's very interesting mm. procedure writing a book. It is. It's a big job. It's a big commitment. Yeah. I love what you've said. And for everyone listening, as we're moving into 2021, you know, if, if you've got this idea for writing, mm. as people, take Dad's advice. I think just get in even, as you said, 10, 20 minutes a day. That's yes. something we, we can all do. We yes, all that's do. right. You might be able to afford more time than that, and some people can. Uh, but whatever you can afford the time. and but mainly to get started. I think it's like anything in life. If you're going to do it, the first thing is you've got to get started. That's it. Yeah. Have you got any tips on how to get started on something if, you, if you're procrastinating? Have you ever had any trouble getting started on something? Normally, if, if it's something that's dear to your heart, something you want to do, it's no problem getting started. Mm. Other times... It's not, for instance, I'm just thinking our property at Lincoln Park, it was uh, at Dolby, it was 3,500 acres and it was not, it was a little good, bit of arable country, not a lot, Brigley country, but we ran mainly cattle and I could, got to a stage where I thought we're not making a huge amount of money from these cattle. But wool, I think, will come good. It was just something I had in my mind. So I said, so I said to Marg, we'll, we'll sell all the cattle and we'll buy some Western Weathers, young ones. She said, whatever you want to do. She's very agreeable, Marg. Whatever you want to do, she said. So we sold all the cattle, except our few milkers, mm -hmm. which we used to milk for the family milk pot and um, we went and bought western weathers to two tooth weathers which is just past the lamb stage and uh, good weathers and good wool and fortuitously the 
I mean, picked the right time because the the wool prices went up, and it was uh, quite a lot of work in sheep. Whether you've got to watch for worms and you've got to watch for or uh, fly, blowfly, and uh, keep keep them keep them healthy. And they'll keep you wealthy and wise. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you had some very good years with them also. We, yeah, we did. So you just got started. You just didn't think, you just went, right, we're going to do uh, I said, right, we're going to do this. And it was something I wanted to do. It was quite a, a big decision mm -hmm. to sell cattle, which in the trifling cattle we had uh, uh, Hereford, um, Santa Catrina's Cross. They were very good cattle, and nearly, uh, nearly it's like drawing your eye teeth to have to sell these oh, really? beautiful cattle. But mm. I thought, well, we're going to get do it. We'll do this. So we did. So welcome everybody to the second part of our interview with um, my beautiful father, Dad. Um, we had a bit of a lockdown. COVID-19 situation happened happened during January, so that gave us a bit of a delay in terms of being able to do this interview. So we're really excited today to be doing this interview and seeing each other again after that That's lockdown. Right. That's right. Because when a lockdown happens, we are not able to see each other. So I feel very grateful. I feel very grateful to be able to see you today. That's good. Yeah, yeah. It really is. And it's been so wonderful in the first part of the interview to hear your life story. And then today I just wanted to ask now, I guess, some questions about the things that we've talked about a lot on Your Freedom Unlimited, things like acceptance and love and trust and, and gratitude. So, um, and we've just, I'll just ask you a few questions now, if that's okay. So in terms of acceptance, this is something we've talked a lot about on Your Freedom Unlimited in terms of having to, what are the benefits of actually accepting things in life rather than sort of resisting them and railing against them? And you have had to accept some very tough things in your life. You lost your parents at a very young age, and um, also your life partner getting dementia, my mum getting de dementia, and then having to, you know, roll with the circumstances of that and then and then support her through all of those years. So I guess, um, what was it like for you to, how did you come to accept those situations? Well, with the parent situation, that's a thing that happens. And when you're young, you accept it because... It's part of your deal, I guess. Mm. And so you've got to make the best of it. But with my wife, Margaret, your mother, I knew, we knew for 15 years before she died that she had dementia, took her to a very good specialist, as you remember, in Brisbane. And the fact was, we knew what the end result was going to be, and she got progressively worse going along, but at all times she was very positive. And so there was always that thinking, the feeling, well, something could happen here and she could could be cured or she could be cured partially. And so there wasn't it wasn't a finite thing. And the fact that she was such a had such a positive attitude about life, she was very easy to look after. She didn't become cranky or nasty or anything like that. She was a lovely person to look after. Uh, very hard to get a decision from her, which is understandable. But uh, if I'd say, well, what do we want to do this or that? And she'd say, well, you just do what you want to do. And I'm quite happy with it. So we did many, many things together. And uh, I suppose in some respects, I was very happy because there was no arguments about what we did. That was the upside. <laughs> and because everyone grizzled about women arguing, but there was no argument. And uh, we got on very, very well. And I take it to Camelville. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but to a um, drover's reunion, stockman's reunion at Camelville, it take us four days to drive out. And we'd drive leisurely out to Camelville, which is right out on the Lebanon Territory border. Have a week or so there and then four days to come back. But it was the most, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I know Margaret enjoyed 
the trip out and the time together we had uh, very very positive so there was always that thought that something good can happen and even while the really good thing a, a cure wasn't available and didn't become available uh, nevertheless there was always a thought that in the end result until the final month i suppose we knew the uh, time was up it was sad then but nevertheless there's also the feeling well she's going to a much better place and uh, her worries her concerns will be over so so it's a lot of mind over matter and how you handle what is what you're dealt in life, we dealt with a, a, a hand of cards, and uh, sometimes they're not good. Little periods may be not good, and others are good. And see how you handle the ones that aren't good, or how you handle the ones that are good. Uh, and I was very, very fortunate in having uh, Jenny and the other children, Margaret's other children, Dave and Tony, and and Shirley, uh, very supportive of what I was doing. They would come when they could to see their mother. And uh, uh, I know she was always happy to see them. And so that was a big blessing for her. But it was, it was, uh, it's a thing that when you're confronted with the problems there, most of us say, well, this is how it goes and we'll make the best of it. I suppose that's the answer. We'll make the best of it. Mm -hmm. And, Dad, you certainly did. Mm -hmm. You absolutely made the best of it. And um, you really made Mum's life, I think, a joy. You, you, know, you included her mm -hmm. in everything. You involved her in everything. You took her absolutely everywhere that you could. You maintained her dignity. You know, all of these mm -hmm. sorts of things were, you know, really helped him. She had the very best of quality of life because you were so assiduous with looking after her and and so on so yeah, i'm very you. grateful for that you know, thank you very, very yeah. grateful for that and i know she was too and very grateful for you yes mm. yes. So. yes she uh, i know she had it she uh, was a wonderful lady and had a uh, had a wonderful life really and i was pleased that we had 50 years of marriage mm. and it was Marriage is not all beer and skittles all the way. You have your uh, ins and outs, but nevertheless, we the, the further we went in marriage, the closer we got. And uh, so I was very, very fortunate. Looking back, I'm very, very fortunate to marry Margaret Warden. It was, uh, she was a lovely person. She sure was, Dad. She absolutely was. And I guess that leads me to one of the other things. I mean, what you're, one of the things that I, I always think of you is your very high level of resilience. And resilience is a big sort of buzzword these days. It's something that, um, you know, we hear a lot of and it's an important thing for people to, to really cultivate. And I, I think your generation were just resilient. Res resilience was part of it all. And um, I guess what advice do you have for someone who is going through a tough time, who... What, if someone was going through a tough time right now, what would you suggest, to, what would you say to them? It, it's a hard one. I, I think it's innate in us. Some, some people handle the really tough times and some don't. I'm not trying to say I'm anyone better than anyone else. But, <clears throat> but nevertheless, even in days at school, it was a... Um, I went to college in Charles Tower through the fact that my father was a return man. I went through legacy. And it was rather than a Keynesian type of... I, I recall when my father died, uh, the headmaster called me up as you come up to study Shepherd and uh, has your father been sick lately? And... Uh, no, no, I think he's all right. I was 12 years old at this time, of course. So no, he hadn't been sick. Yeah, he'd been all right. I've just got to tell you, he passed away yesterday. And uh, so it is quite a shock. 
hard for a for a 12 year old and no doubt uh, when you can't listen you can't listen that shock to the death of a loved one and, and you've got to be told but uh, nevertheless and he said who's your master and uh, he said i get him to keep an eye on you and uh, it so happened he was a uh, a returned aircraft, air crew man from the war, had only just come back from the Second World War, who were called Aggie Miller, who became my football coach and a lot of things like that. And uh, we, we, he kept an eye on me as he was asked. And uh, I became very, very fond of him. Mm. He was mm. in, in a lot of ways. He took the place of my father. Mm things he took. What a blessing he must have been. For you. He was a, indeed a blessing. So Dad, it was so lucky that you had Iggy in your life and he must have, I guess, demonstrated a lot of things to you. I often wonder if he is the one who taught you about optimism or if you were already always a very naturally optimistic person. Because when I think of the people I've met in my life, you are one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. And um, I've, I think it's a great skill to have. So did you learn that from him, do you think, or was it something innate in you? Mm. I think it's the cards we're dealt with, and I think I've just been very, very fortunate that I've, I am optimistic. I can look back through life, and the things that stand out to me are the good things. I can't recall. Well, all I know, I think about them, but, you know, if I want to, things that aren't good and we all had things that weren't so good in life but I recall all the good things and they they are up the front like uh, uh, you know they're bubbling at the top more or less uh, so that's I think I was born that way really mm. yeah well and again another blessing what a blessing to be born that way because mm. these are things I think you think you can be more naturally optimistic or not and not to say that we can't you know, build that neural pathway and improve our capability. But I think so. You have always been a very bright and optimistic person, mm. and even in the most difficult of times, you've you've really, really, uh, you know, been so optimistic and always look to the future mm. and always looking forward ahead. And I think that's a very positive, yeah. positive thing. It's it's a something I think was ingrained into us at in at the college I went to, Thunder College. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, don't be a whinger. You mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you can't whinge about things. So it's always been abrasive to me. That I mean, if you say someone to someone, "Good morning, how are you?" If you get a litany of yeah, how bad the person is, it's not a good start. But they say, "Oh, I'm pretty good." Yeah, fine, you know, this is happening. Well, you've got a better a better relationship to start it straight away. Haven't you? Yeah. It's a good way to start the day, isn't it? It the is, upside. yeah. Yep. And, and not to, because everyone has problems. It's no good enumerating them because nobody, nobody wants to listen to anyone. <laughs> Unless it's terribly important. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Dad. And I, I think I remember being learning some of the same things at boarding school myself in terms of, yes, not whinging. And I guess to me what goes hand in hand with optimism is a good dose of gratitude. And um, that's, how you know, what role has gratitude played in your life and perhaps very, what are you most grateful for? It, it's a very big uh, role, gratitude, really. It's terribly important for us to have gratitude and for other people to, the ones who've done something for us, to know that we appreciate their action. It really is important mm. because uh, so many people do things. Sometimes it's just tiny little things they might do, a few words they'll give you and uh, will do, which will lift you up in whatever situation you're there at the moment and so yeah gratitude is uh, it's extremely important and what what things are you most grateful for in life oh, i'm probably grateful for the fact that i suppose predominantly that i 
married Marg. I'm grateful for that because mm. it changed my life entirely. But I was grateful for other people that helped me. Peggy Miller, Alan Dean was a fellow I worked for, and he actually got a drilling, first drilling, old drilling plan through. He, he suggested I take it and go contract drilling. Oh, was it Alan Dean? Alan oh. Dean, yes. And uh, I uh, did. And as he uh, said, he said, you buy a better one. So I bought a better one and then I bought another one and uh, did very well for five years, worked very hard. And uh, the old saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Mm. And uh, so for five years and at that time, it just at the right time I met your mother mm -hmm. who was wanting someone uh, as a partner, a life partner. So, Dad, friendship has also played a really big role in your life. When I think of the stories and the many stories you've told me over the years, I, I feel like I've learned a lot about your life through the stories you've told me of your friendships mm. and, you know, you know, the support and friendship of, of Alan Dean and in supporting you to, to move into that venture with the drilling and so on. What has friendship meant to you? What does friendship mean to you? Well... It is the glue in your life, really. It's the people we meet and we are friendly with that, are, that make our life. Firstly, my wife, your mother, and her, her children, her, my stepchildren, three, three children, Margaret had when I was, when we were married and they were from 12 to nine. I'm very fortunate to have a, the friendship of David and Tony and Shirley and, and of yours, your friendship, once you came along. So it's, it's been a marvellous thing, but when I've had a little leg up in the world, it's through a friend and a, and a fellow called Sandy Whitehead who lived had a property out near Winton, an old established property. I got on well with Sandy. And I remember I was going to buy another drilling plant, which was, and I'd been working. I'd done some work for Sandy. I, I actually, I drilled a ball for him, that's right. And uh, he knew I was going to buy. Oh, he said, oh, he had an aeroplane. He said, I'll fly you out to Woolia, where this place is, to, uh, to, to look at this other drilling plant. Which we did, and then I bought it. And uh, then my brother-in-law and sister—they were very helpful. And my brother-in-law, Bill Barnes, who was a mate of mine in the territory in our stockman days, he came out, and we brought the old drilling plant back on a an old international truck, which which looked uh, looked like it came out of the ark, but never. <laughs> Nevertheless, it worked all right, and we got back uh, unregistered, but we drove it back from well, east of Bullia back to to their place where I could do the plant up and get everything ready. So, yeah, the friendship there, and I've had many, many friendships. I mean, when I was in my picnic riding days with horses, uh, a fellow called Dennis Hogg, he was... I used to ride his horses for him and uh, another fellow, uh, Ian Mitchell. He, he, he was, they were both exceptionally good. We had others, but those two were very, very mm -hmm. strong and, and uh, they had their horses. And, and picnic racers is a big deal out there in those days. And it was probably one of that and a game of cricket or tennis was the leisure mm. that I got, but mm. you got the friendship from people there, uh, which was... Uh, Another blessing. Yes, certainly a blessing, yes. And I think from what I can gather from the stories you've told me, I think you've been a pretty good friend to many people as well, so it cuts both ways. Dad, you've had a very fortunate and a very successful life. You've raised a family, you've been a successful grazier and, you know, owner of a farm, you've written two books, you're an accomplished musician and poet. You've won awards for those things. 
you've been a real community leader. You've you've in, in, in leading very a lot of organisations, and you certainly looked after mum and dealt with all of the very difficult of circumstances that you had had there. And the interesting thing is, we haven't even really talked about your current pursuits, which is that you're learning art, and that you're still entertaining others here in your aged care facility. Mm. You're still leading you're singing you're engaging people and you're leading you know musical events so there's never a dull moment when you're around but um so it's been a very rich life so i guess if you had any advice for other people listening you know people those of us who are a bit younger have still got a bit of life ahead of us what advice do you have for us to make the best of the moment really uh i bought I, uh, I, I wanted to buy a uh, recorder just for recording tapes, for, not for recording tapes, for uh, playing tapes. And I asked Shirley, and Shirley got her husband, Jeremy, who bought me a... Uh, karaoke machine. Karaoke machine mm. for a very cheap price. And this has been wonderful. And uh, we'll get people in and sing them, sing along... With them and uh, it's music is a great it's a great joiner uh, uh, it, it's it brings people together doesn't it it, it really does it brings mm. people together yes indeed and uh, so what i do here is uh if possible i mean there's others there play the harmonica now i can't play the guitar because i've got my fingers are too stiff, but uh, play the harmonica and uh, it goes down very well. And even an entertainer this morning, he's uh, a very good friend of mine, Eric, and he's uh, a, a, a guitar player and a very good singer, musician, and also a ventriloquist. And he includes me in his show, which is very good. It's quite an honour, isn't it? It's quite an honour. Yes, I'll be included in this show. We put a, a little thing together with, uh, it was, uh, uh, but yes, it's wonderful. So, uh, so music is good. Music is a wonderful catalyst for friendship. And uh, we... It's a great thing we, to help you be in the moment. I think you said, you know, for us to be in the moment is, is one of the things we can do. Make the best of the moment. Yes, make the best of the moment. Yeah, yeah, don't, uh, don't sit back. But, I mean, by the same token, we can't push ourselves forward and be try to be all and end all. But there are times when there's a bit of a lull there and they want something to do, someone to do something. <clears throat> you say, oh, yeah. And even some of the old ladies here who... Have been good singers that day. You'll get up to them and sing a song to them, and uh, you know that we try to tell us we're too young, and, <laughs> and they have, they enjoy that. And they'll mm -hmm. sing back to you, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, music's wonderful. Just that creative pursuit, isn't it? So having having something that you can really enjoy doing in mm. every moment, isn't it? Mm, right. It is. Yeah. Well, Dad, thank you so much for your time, and I was wondering if you could take us out with uh, with a bit of a tune on your harmonica. You you play so beautifully, I thought it'd be lovely for everyone to hear. All right. Um, the old start of the Swanee River, which is the first old harmonica song everyone played. For joining me on this episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate and review Your Freedom Unlimited on your favourite podcast player. 
If you have any questions, comments or feedback, you can reach me directly at jenramsey.com. Thanks for listening. 